if you want to, you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We began uh, just a couple of weeks ago a new series out of Mark called Mystery. Um, Mark is this, uh, the shortest gospel, but in a lot of ways the, the most essential gospel. So a couple of weeks ago, again, this idea of mystery, uh, one of the ways of, of describing God is this mysterium tremendum ac faciosum, the, the terrifying and fascinating mystery of God. And, and you see that seeping through Mark's, Mark's record. We think, uh, we think Mark was, was kind of partnered with Peter. Peter was right there next to Jesus. Peter was this eyewitness guy. And, and as Peter's telling Mark this story, you just see Mark just furiously scribbling down everything he, he, he had to say, everything he told them about Jesus. And there are these words that, that pop out of Mark that rise to the surface, words like amazing and terrifying. It is the, this picture of, of God and Mark, this picture of Jesus is a God that both amazes and terrifies at the same time. And, and, and it's a mystery how it all works. But in chapter 4, verse 11, it says, this mystery, this mysterion, you've been given to know. You can know the mystery of God. And last week, we talked a little bit more about uh, Jesus. We looked at chapter 1 and, and some of the miracles he does there. We looked at his authority and how he's motivated by compassion. He, he shows his willingness. Remember the last week, we talked about the leper who approaches Jesus and says, If you're willing, you can heal me. And what does Jesus do? He says, I am willing. And people are amazed and what? terrified at the same time. So uh, I don't know if there are any history buffs in here. So uh, you can correct me when I get this wrong. I'm going to stay close to my notes. In, uh, in early uh, 1861, South Carolina and other southern states withdrew from the Union to form a new nation called the Confederate States of America. Have you ever heard of this? But our, our president at the time, a man named Abraham Lincoln, would not accept the South's cessation and refused to remove U.S. soldiers from South Carolina. So Confederate leaders ordered an attack on a U.S.-held base in Charleston Harbor. Anyone know the name of the base, name of the fort? Fort Sumter. And just before sunrise on April the 12th, 1861, a shell exploded just above Fort Sumter. It was the first shot fired in what? That's right, the War of Northern Aggression. <clears throat> who, who shot first in this war? Let's just make that clear. Uh, uh, that's what we call it sometimes. Uh, yeah, it was the first shot fired in the American Civil War. Um, really interesting battle at, at Fort, Fort Sumter. I think we even have a picture. There's some, there's some artwork from it. After, after 33 hours uh, of, of constant fighting, uh, Major Robert Anderson, the commander of the small U.S. force who was holding Fort Sumter, he, he eventually surrenders. Uh, in that 33 hours of fighting, more than 4,000 uh, uh, artillery shells or cannonballs, I don't know what they had back then, more than 4,000 shells had been fired uh, from, from both sides, and there was, at least yet, there was not even a single casualty. Can you believe that? 
This was the beginning of the Civil War. And in Mark chapter 2 and, and the beginning of, of, of chapter 3, we, we see the popularity of Jesus just growing like crazy. Um, crowds are gathering around. People can't even get in houses. They're, they're peeking in doorways. They're, they're packed and tight. They're blocking streets. He is getting all of this attention, and, and this attention that Jesus is getting has not gone unnoticed by the Sanhedrin. All right, so for uh, uh, the Jews, the, the a Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin is the, is the Jewish high council in charge of protecting orthodoxy. That means the Sanhedrin are, are kind of the governing body. They are, if you will, they're the supreme court who decides what is right thinking about God. And the Sanhedrin's goal is to kind of protect this thinking, this ideology, this theology about God and who he is and how he moves and how he thinks. Their job is to protect Jewish thought. Their, 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 their whole purpose is to protect Judaism, to guard against false teaching, to guard against false prophets. And uh, I, I hate to speak too poorly of them because their, their task is a noble one. I mean, they live in a pagan world where there's every kind of influence you could possibly imagine. And the Sanhedrin's goal is to protect God, to protect his word, to protect Torah, to protect the law of God. But somewhere along the way in their role of protectors, they became more focused on the law than on the heart of the one who created it. And in Mark chapter 2, this Sanhedrin is going to line up against the person of Jesus Christ. And there's five episodes in, uh, in chapter 2 of Mark and into the beginning of chapter 3. There's, there's five stories where the Sanhedrin and Jesus are going to start butting heads. In Mark chapter 2, the first shots in this battle will be fired. Jesus is going to challenge the Sanhedrin on, on the purpose and function of the Sabbath. He's going to heal the man's withered hand. Jesus is going to challenge the Sanhedrin on their thinking about fasting, and he's going to permit his, his disciples to break heads of grain off and eat them. Jesus is going to challenge the orthodoxy of the Sanhedrin uh, when it comes to what is the kingdom of heaven and who can actually be admitted because he's going to hang out with notorious sinners and tax collectors, people that the Sanhedrin used the word to describe. They call them scum. And you may not see it yet, but these stories represent the beginning of a battle a war between the religion of the day and the good news of Jesus Christ, the powers that be versus the powers of God. These things are, are colliding. These, this is the first shots. And by the end of chapter 2, the early part of chapter 3, things are going to escalate. If you look in chapter 3, verse 6, you'll see how far things are going to go. It says, At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Can you see chapter 2 is the beginning? What happens in these few moments is the first shot of a war. And this, uh, this, this uh, if there is a, a first shot, it begins in chapter 2 and verse 1 
with the story of a paralyzed man. Let's read it together, and then we'll spend some time talking about it. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12 says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the good news spread quickly that he was back home, and soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. And while he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law, here they are, the scouting party of the Sanhedrin, who were sitting there, thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus immediately knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the crowd, through the stunned onlookers. They were all, what's that word? And praise God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. How many of you have heard this story before? Sound familiar? Uh, good. I want to spend some time and just kind of walk through this story verse by verse because it's, it's really important. Uh, and I wish we had more like tech budget because I would totally just lower somebody. I would do that. You guys know me. I would make that. We got some teenagers. We'll volunteer. Um, I may have to make I may have to make that happen. Um, not only uh, one of one of the awesome ways that Mark just records these events is is to say not only is the paralyzed man lowered through the roof, but but so are we, the readers. Um, do you see that? In the way Mark records this story, we are lowered right down into the middle of the action. News has spread of Jesus' return. The house is so packed with visitors, there's no room. It's more crowded than a Taylor Swift concert. And four men show up carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They can't get through the crowd. It's, it's completely full, so they dig a hole through the roof above his head to lower him down right in front of Jesus. Now here's one of those instances in the Bible where it just leaves us hanging because I'm desperate for more information. I want more of this story. I mean, can you picture this scene? Just picture it. There's, there's, there's a house and it's packed. There's, there's people spilling out into the street. Everyone's kind of peering over, trying to get a glimpse, listening to Jesus. And all of a sudden in this packed little room, is the sound of digging. And then pieces of dirt and dust and debris begin to fall on people. Uh, what do you think the, that the homeowner, what's the look on the homeowner's face about this time? What are they thinking? You think they went out and tried to stop it? I'm desperate to know who these four guys are because these are some pretty incredible friends. What would motivate someone to do something like this for a friend? 
Uh, and, and it just sends my mind into all kinds of speculation. Like, like, how did these four guys get connected to this, this paralyzed guy? Were, were they all workers on a job site and an accident happened and, and one of the guys gets paralyzed and, and they were friends before and, and out of guilt, they, they've just kind of said, we're going to take care of him. Or, are these four guys, are, are they the ones that are showing up to feed this paralyzed guy or change his clothes or wash him? Like, like how did they they get into this kind of relationship. I, I mean, clearly there's a strong, strong bond here. But more than that, how did they know? And I mean, they know. How did they know that Jesus could heal their friend? I wonder if, um, and again, it's all just speculation. I mean, Mark just leaves us hanging. But how did they know? I mean, they were so confident that they were going to, you know, commit damage to somebody's home. That's how convinced they were. Maybe they themselves, I, I don't know, as my mind races about trying to fill in the backstory of this, maybe they had been, maybe one of them had experienced healing for themselves. I, I don't know, maybe they were part of this, this group of sick and lame and hurting guys. Could you imagine that, that the five of them, they're all kind of at the city gates, they're all kind of positioned there to get help and request help from, from strangers as they show up. And, and maybe somehow one of them gets connected to Jesus and receives some healing gift, and that one begins a domino effect. The one goes back and grabs another and brings them to Jesus and, and, and bring that person. Now they have two, and now the two go back and get a third. You see, I, I, I don't know, but is that what happened? Because the four of them are extremely convinced that if they can get this guy at Jesus' feet, he could be healed. And in the actions of these four friends, I see the embodiment of our mission as a church to grow followers of Jesus Christ. I see the embodiment of our mission here in Franklin and Brentwood and Nashville. Do you see it? Individuals who know are, are convinced about the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Um, sometimes I, I wonder if, if Christians kind of hide behind a prayer as a way of, of disguising our own inactivity. You know what I'm saying? Um, sometimes do you, do you feel like maybe you turn to prayer as, 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 I mean, we're turning things over to God, but, but you're, you're choosing to pray about it as a way of disguising our own unwillingness to actually, to truly kind of intervene. You see, undoubtedly, these friends had prayed for the paralyzed man's recovery. I mean, it doesn't say that in scripture, but I'm I'm just going to say that that was there. But they didn't just pray for his healing. They didn't stop there. When they see an opportunity for their friend to come to Christ and be healed, they take it. And they're willing to stop at nothing, right? There is a tenacity of faith, a tenacity of compassion at work that's, that, man, that's very admirable. And they work together to bring those, their friend to Christ. And, and maybe there's a lesson there for us about bringing our neighbors and our schools and our workplaces. I want you to pray for your schools, absolutely. But is there a place for you to intervene? I want you to pray for your friends and neighbors who don't know Christ. But is there, are, are you just kind of hiding behind that prayer? Is there, is there a place for you to step in? 
and bring someone to Christ, to use more of yourself, to draw others into the presence of Jesus Christ. That's part of, you know, we've developed this new kind of small group idea. It's one of the things that we're trying to, to move us into of how do, we, how do we actually do this? How do we actually disciple people? How do we draw people in as followers of Jesus Christ in deeper ways? In verse 5, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. This is classic Mark. The Mark is the Mark in uh, Jesus in Mark is, is in some ways the, uh, the most divine, but also in some ways the most human. And he just sees the guy's face. I, I feel like they get a smirk on his face when he says this. And he looks at the paralyzed man and says, my child. And what's the expectation? If you've read chapter 1, we know all about the willing Jesus who puts his hand on the leper. We've seen Jesus do the healing miracles uh, to uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. We've seen Jesus heal, heal, heal. And we get to this scene. And the readers, we expect Jesus to reach out his hand and say, I am willing to touch him and say a word of healing. But mysteriously, Jesus does something completely unexpected. And he says... Your sins are forgiven. I don't know if the paralyzed man could talk, uh, or I'm assuming he could hear, but was he thinking, uh, great. <laughs> you know, thanks. Not really why I'm here. You know, like what's his expectation? And I love this picture of Jesus to, to kind of, have you ever been in that place where God gives you what you need, not necessarily what you want? And you see, you have to understand a little bit their, their connection between, the, the cultural connection between sin and suffering. Um, it was not an uncommon thought among Jews and others that, that sin and suffering were related. It was, this, it was this kind of karma idea. Uh, karma is not a biblical idea at all, but it, but it's exist, it exists in our world today. Karma is this kind of idea that if I do something bad, what's going to happen to me? Something bad. And if I do something good, what's going to happen to me? So if you see a paralyzed man, what's the obvious? Clearly, he's done something wrong. Clearly, he's done something bad. Even a, one of the rabbis is quoted as saying, there is no sick man healed of his sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. So there was this idea that, that sickness or sin and suffering, sin and sickness were, were kind of interrelated and intertwined. Now, I, wanted, I tell you, that's, that's not a biblical idea because Jesus doesn't buy into this belief. Uh, if, if you question me, you can read John chapter 9, where a blind, a blind man is brought to Jesus and people ask Jesus, hey, who sinned, right? Uh, who sinned, this man or his parents? So they're, they're even thinking the idea of the parents' sin can somehow transfer over and show up in some sort of uh, uh, a deformity or disability like blindness. And Jesus says it was not because of his or his parents' sin. Uh, don't miss this. Jesus warns that it would be a mistake to extrapolate that all sickness or paralysis or bad luck is the result of sin. All right? Now, I do believe sin has a power over life. It causes things to happen. But Jesus says, 
Just because something bad happened to you may or may not necessarily be the result of your sin. But that is the way they think. And so Jesus is going to use their belief to make a point. And so a paralyzed man is brought down. Everyone in the room thinks this guy's a sinner. And so what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who are sitting there thought to themselves in verse 6 and 7, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Now remember, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, they have their, uh, their scouting party on the front row of this house, probably in seats of prestige and honor, right? They're sitting on the front row watching this whole thing, and one of the core beliefs that the Sanhedrin, that the Supreme Court of Judaism is trying to protect is that only God can forgive sins. So now we have this human carpenter who's claiming to forgive sins. And this is, uh, this is like Harry Potter's The Unforgivable Curse. Like, I mean, it is, it is the worst thing Jesus could have said. Uh, literally, the, the, in the law, to blaspheme in this way was, a, was, a, was a, a, a penalty or was an offense punishable by stoning, something they actually try in John chapter 8. To say that you can forgive sins is an offense punishable by death. And when Jesus sees the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiving, he is firing the first shot. Are you with me? You see how that's a big deal? Jesus knows at this point he is signing his own death warrant. In verse 8 it says, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your heart? I, I'm terrified of this idea that Jesus knew what they were thinking. Like it, they didn't verbalize, hey, this is blasphemy. But Jesus somehow could, and maybe they didn't have a good poker face. Maybe it wasn't that hard for Jesus to read what they were thinking. But Jesus gets a very clear picture that these guys aren't, aren't okay with this. He sees their thoughts, and I love his question. He says, why do you question this in your, in your what? In your heart. Jesus isn't concerned, or Jesus' concern is for the heart. Um, Jesus' concern isn't for how loud you sing on Sunday. Jesus' concern isn't for, for, for how loudly you voice your defiance Jesus' concern isn't for, for, for how boldly you pledge your allegiance. Jesus is concerned with the heart. And Jesus calls him out. He's not going not to let it stand. And he simply says in verses 9 and 10, Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So I want you to see this logic. It's important to see how this works. 
based on the logic of the day, the reason the man is paralyzed is due to his own sinfulness. So the man cannot be cured unless he is first forgiven. But there's no way to prove if someone is forgiven or not. I can say your sins are forgiven, but how do we know? There's, what's the evidence of that? So if Jesus is able to heal the man, his claim to have authority from God to forgive sins must also be real. You see how this works? And Jesus says, watch this. And I love this scene. And Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man slowly kind of cracks his back and rolls over. Now, what's it say? I love this language. He jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. And they were all amazed. And praise God. I said, <laughs> I've never seen anything like this before. Here we begin at the end of the story is, I, I want more. I want more story. I love that he jumped up and grabbed his mat. That's a great visual. That helps me. I love that, that the crowd is amazed. This is a, this is a perfect, this is a great word. But, but what was the reunion like between the previous paralyzed man and his friends? I want to know what this was like. During this whole exchange with Jesus, are there four heads kind of hanging over the hole in the roof, watching, waiting to see what's going to happen? When, when the paralyzed man, their previous paralyzed man, jumps up, what do they do? Does one almost fall into the hole? You know, like, do they, when he jumps up, do they jump up too? I picture them, uh, the paralyzed man, moving front, through the crowd. The crowd parts like the Red Sea, you know. People are amazed, but they're also terrified, right? They make space for him, and he goes outside. His friends that were on the roof, I, I just imagine these guys running down the steps or climbing down the ladder, however they did that. And can you imagine this reunion? Uh, I, I mean, hugging, and, and I, I want to see it. Like, the way I see it in my head, and I know it's not scripture. This is Adam's head, but I, I just see him, like, tackling him, and then, like, hold on. Let's not paralyze him again, you know? Like, that's the scene I see. Maybe the, um, the previous paralyzed man, where does he go first? Where would you go? Family or friends? Does he have kids? Does he have grandkids? You know, I don't know. I don't know, and I want more. Um, as a paralyzed man, does he challenge his four friends to a race? You know, like, I want more of this story. Like I said, this is a story you are invited into. I want to wrap up some thoughts, but, but before I do that, I want to share with you, um, in just a few moments, we're going to enter into a time of communion, uh, a mysterious time. A time of, we have three tables set up around the room that, that hold the elements that represent the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to give you a chance to go and take these elements, to take the cup, which represents his blood poured out for us, to, to take the bread, 
um, to remember his sacrifice, to remember the forgiveness that we have received, those very words, your sins are forgiven. When we take communion, we enter into that. We get to be a part of that. And so in just a few moments, I'm going to say a prayer and dismiss you to that, that time. But before we get there, I just want to share with you these last few thoughts. I want to come back to the thoughts of the scouting party from the Sanhedrin. You remember what they thought? That read that God got, that, that Jesus was able to see in their faces. You remember what their hearts were saying? Their hearts said, only God can forgive sins. And they're exactly right. Right? They don't even know how right they are. They're 100% correct. But unlike the paralyzed man's friends, even though they sat right at the feet of Jesus, witnessed his power first, and they had front row tickets to see the power and the authority of Jesus at work, I just couldn't bring themselves to believe that this simple carpenter was the son of man, that this was the son of God. So three words, how about you? Remember I said in this story, Mark lowers us down through the roof. He places you right in the center of the action. Through the words of Peter, the writing of Mark, you have been lowered down into the scene on a stretcher. You have witnessed the power and the teaching and the authority of Jesus for yourself. Will you accept the claims, the authority of Jesus? What does your heart tell you? Today, will you rise up from your mat? Will you jump up as you escape the paralysis of sin, because that's what it does, right? Sin has that way of just kind of holding you in place. Will you escape the paralysis of your sin and accept the forgiveness that only the Son of God can offer? And then you, us, who have experienced this kind of new life, who have been drawn up, who, who've, who have been forgiven, those of us who claim to, to know Christ and give our lives to him, those of us who have jumped up and received this new life, will you have the faith of the paralyzed man's friends? If you've received this new life in Christ... Will you take the incredible initiative that the paralyzed, men, the paralyzed man's friends took? That's our mission, right? To go to any lengths necessary to place those around us at the feet of Jesus so that they might receive the true gift of life as well. Are you with me? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word and the, 
the way your spirit moves and works through it and uh, draws, draws new things out of us. Father God, I pray right now in this room that, that walls would, would be torn down and broken, that all of those things that, that we've been clinging to that have created space between us and you would, would be washed away. Father God, as we enter into this time of communion, as we take this, this, this cup and this bread, which represent the, the body and blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that, that we would enter into, be reminded of this new life, that we would jump up and celebrate the forgiveness, the life we've received because of him. Father God, as we take this bread and this cup, let us accept the authority of your son, Jesus, in our life again. Let us move to trust you with, with all of our decisions, with our finances, with our parenting, with our, with our marriage. Father God, let us move in this incredible place of trust. And Father God, let us move also as the four friends did. As men and women who have received the gift of forgiveness, who have, who have received this gift of grace, let us go into the world with something to offer. Let us go into the world with something to offer those in our neighborhood and our workplaces, those who are stuck, paralyzed in sin and doubt and guilt and fear and shame. And Father God, let us move past any barriers, any hesitations that surround us, and let us draw all men and women to the one who has the power and the authority to forgive. Father God, I'm so thankful it's not our job to forgive, it's yours. But we have a task in bringing others into your presence. And so, Father God, as we take this cup and as we take this bread, let the names of those people who we've just kind of been putting off or put on a shelf or, or, or kind of just let sit, Father God, let those names and let those faces compel us to action. Father God, let this church be a place that takes the initiative. We love you, Father. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that everyone together says, Amen. I invite you now to rise and enjoy a time of communion.